Today's scripture reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 22. This is the word of God. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who refile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Willie. Let us pray one more time for the preaching of God's word. Father, we thank you that you revealed yourself to us, Father, not just in creation, but also through your prophets, through the patriarchs, through your covenants, Father, and ultimately and climactically through your son, Jesus Christ. He came, born in human flesh, suffered, was crucified, was dead and buried, and then he was resurrected. And after he was resurrected, he ascended to be seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from where he rules and where he will return then to judge the living and the dead. Father, help us now worship this Christ. Help us now through Christ to see you, to worship you for who you are, Father, to be brought closer to your presence, to hear your word now preached in this difficult passage. Help me be clear and spirit be present here with us. Make us known to us your will through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're continuing our series in the book of 1 Peter where we're going verse by verse through this particular book. And um, this is a tough passage. I'm sure as we just went through the scripture and we just read it just now, you're already thinking to yourself, what in the world does this passage mean? There's stuff here about spirits in prison, stuff here about Noah, stuff here about where Jesus went after he died, uh, stuff about baptism, uh, stuff about demons and authorities and powers. This is actually one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. So um, bear with me as we go through this passage today. But I want us to see and I want us to be shown that verses 18 to 22, uh, which is what we're going to cover in our second point later today, even though it's logically terse, it's logically difficult, and it's theologically dense, this is not a mere theological excursus. This is not a parenthesis. This is not a side note to the message of the book of 1 Peter. But everything that he says in this difficult passage of verses 18 and 22 is to undergird everything Peter had just established in his last two chapters, right? 
Over the last few weeks, you saw him unfolding this encouragement to persecuted Christians, no matter where they come from, whether they're servants subjected to masters or wives, Christian wives, with unbelieving husbands or husbands with unbelieving wives. He's telling all of these people in society who's just become Christians who are being persecuted by all kinds of people, and he's encouraging them one by one, stay faithful. Don't fight back. Stay faithful to your God. You are not supposed to defend the faith by reviling them back. You're not supposed to defend the faith by taking matters into your own hands or from running away from the situation, but rather by forgiving and forbearing your enemies. You have to stay persevering even in the midst of suffering. And that's where verse 18 to 22 is going to come from later. But to get there, we need to first cover verses 13 to 17. So there are three points from today's sermon. First, from verses 13 to 17, the call to defend the faith. Second, the power to do it. And third, how we know we can have the power to do it. So first, the call to defend the faith. Verses 13 to 17 here is basically a summary of what just happened before, right? Peter had just told them, suffer well. Stay within all of your uh, places in society. When you become a Christian, your Christian identity doesn't take those things away, but rather you're to remain in society and become faithful witnesses to Christ wherever where you are, right? Be subject to the emperor, but fear the Lord. Honor your husbands and wives, but fear the Lord. So verses 13 to 14 summarizes that again. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And that's exactly the message of 1 Peter in chapter 2, verses 11, all the way to chapter 3, verse 12, as we saw just last week, right? Suffer for righteousness' sake. In other words, if you're trying to live a faithful Christian life, don't be, su- don't be surprised when suffering comes your way. You're going to be misunderstood. The culture is going to misapprehend you. You're going to be persecuted in all these different ways. You're going to have a hard time, in other words. Don't be surprised at this, but continue to suffer for righteousness' sake. Have no fear of this suffering. It's going to come. And have no fear of those people who are causing the suffering in your lives, nor be troubled by them. Why and how? Well, verse 15 is the crucial command of this passage here. And in fact, all of this passage is in support of verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So what's Peter saying? He's saying here that suffering for righteousness' sake, suffering for the sake of the gospel, persevering within your suffering, enduring well, and not fighting back is precisely how you defend the faith. The most effective the most persuasive, the most attractive kind of witness is precisely by innocently suffering. That's how you make a defense of the faith. If you were thinking to yourself, you know, how do you become the most influential, most attractive person 2,000 years from now? How would you get other people to preach about your name, to talk about you, to make great of who you are, to write books about you, to preach about you, to have people being influenced about you, to be attracted to everybody, even 2,000 years from now, from every generation, from one generation to another, your name will continue to be remembered. How would you do that? 
know what the answer to that is? We see Christ dying on the cross. When he was reviled, he didn't revile back. When he was attacked and misapprehended, when he was betrayed, he didn't lash out. He didn't run away from the suffering. He voluntarily took it up. He bore his own cross, and he suffered vicariously for us. His innocent suffering was the very means by which he became the most attractive personality in the world. His innocent suffering was the very means by which he became the power that he is now. The way he was ascended into glory was precisely by innocently suffering. And Peter is saying here, wives, husbands, Servants subjected to your masters, this is how you're persuasive. This is how you make a defense for your faith. Not by intellectually triumphing over people, not by subjecting other people by way of argumentation or by way of fighting, but simply by enduring. In other words, you make Christianity look beautiful when slaves, you forgive and you forbear your masters not because they were just, not because they deserve it, because you have a true and greater master in your Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you make him look beautiful. Wives, you submit and forbear and forgive your unbelieving husbands, not because they're deserving, not because they were just, not because they were good, but because you have a true groom who is Christ your Lord. You can forgive and forbear him because you have a true groom who's forgiven and forbearing you. Husbands, you can love and forgive and forbear your wives and endure whatever suffering that comes your way, whatever shame and whatever suffering that comes your way with your wives because Christ has suffered the greater shame for you. That's how you make a defense of the faith. And so this word there, the defense of the faith there in verse 15, to make a defense, to make anyone, to, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, is primarily about the witness that you're gonna give out to people when you endure suffering. It's not when you're rejoicing in God when you have great gain or great material prosperity. It is not when the good times are coming, but rather when the bad times are here, all right? So verse 15 has been taken out of context in a lot of uh, different avenues. Maybe you've heard it used before in these sort of contexts. Verse 15, make a defense there in the Greek, actually says apologia from where we get the word apologetics. And the discipline of apologetics in Christianity or in, in um, academia simply refers to a defense of the faith. To make an apologetic simply means to make a defense, right? Such that this particular passage had been used before to justify the discipline of apologetics. I remember uh, when I was an undergrad and I heard a seminar on apologetics and they took this verse and they said, here's why we do apologetics, because Christians, uh, some of you are going to be called to defend the faith. First Peter 3.15, always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And for the next hour, this person said, uh, because you have to make a defense, because this is where uh, God is calling you to do some of you, he says, you have to have a strategy for it. So he went on for the next hour by saying, go have a good GPA, uh, uh, apply for the best master's programs in philosophy, uh, master the cosmological argument. If everything, has a, everything that has a beginning has a cause, the universe has a cause, God, there, master these kind of arguments. And then after that, go get a PhD in philosophy and go make a defense for your faith. And the whole seminar was basically predicated upon uh, this text and using it to justify 
encouraging some people to go for this philosophical, academic, intellectual discipline. And I fear that if we read this passage in that light, we miss the force of it. Well, first of all, who is called to defend the faith? Every Christian. Every Christian, not just, in other words, apologetics, defending the faith is not for an academic specialist uh, uh, out there doing philosophical expertise, right? Every Christian is called to defend the faith such that if you, to, if you use this passage to justify apologetics academically, you're going to miss the force of it to you because you're going to end up thinking to yourself, well, defending the faith, that's for the philosophers out there. That's for the academics out there. And I get to watch them on YouTube as they, great, as they make great defenses of Christianity, right? That's not the force of the message at all. Not that there's a place for that. There isn't a place for that, sorry. But that it misses the force of this passage that every single person is actually called to defend the faith. And secondly, defending the faith here is not a philosophical, pre-biblical enterprise. It's not as if defending the faith means you defend the faith by way of philosophy and then later you get to the Bible. But notice here in verse 15, in your hearts, Honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, as you're making a defense of the faith, you're supposed to do it Christ's way. You don't get to decide for yourself how you defend the faith. You don't get to decide yourself how you should make Christianity look attractive. You're not supposed to devise up in your own ways, your own argumentation of how you can make Christianity look appealing to people. You only get to defend the faith the way Christ has called you to defend the faith. And it's profound that it is Peter who's saying this, right? Because it was Peter who, when Christ was being apprehended, sought to defend the faith by taking out his sword and fighting back and cutting off the ear of the servant Malchus. Remember that? And Christ says, Peter, this isn't the way you do it. You don't defend the faith by attacking back. Let me show you. This is how you do it. So Christian, defense, the defense of the faith here doesn't look like triumphing in intellectual rigor or triumphing in kind of a, a battle mentality, but rather by suffering well, you can therefore have a clean conscience, you can pursue forgiveness, and that's when people will ask you, people will see the difference that is in you, and people will say, what in the world could cause you to suffer so well that way? What could motivate these first century Christians who when they were being thrown out to the lions, being crucified upside down like Peter was, being burnt as a way to shame them, to show to the world as a public spectacle, this is what's gonna happen to you Christians. And yet as they were being tortured, they were singing hymns. They were following Jesus who said, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing they continue to love their enemy. They continue to forgive and forbear again and again and again. That's when people will take notice. That's when people will look at you. That's when people will look at us. And they would say, what kind of worldview is this? What kind of power is this? That you can suffer that way and not retaliate. This came to a head for me about last year. I was giving a few talks at a church in Pennsylvania, and um, in the middle of that week, when I was giving these talks in Pennsylvania, during that week, they just found out um, a husband of a particular wife who's a member of that church had just been on a business trip to Thailand, and during that business trip, he fell in love with a younger woman, 
and he came back just for a brief period to tell to his wife he was going back to Thailand to live a new life, to live that life apart from this wife and three kids, and he's simply there to pack his bags and go. And this woman, let's just call her Sarah, um, I was just watching her as she was, she was reeling in Sunday service, right, weeping the whole way. And I remember being told by other members of the church, by the pastor there who invited me to speak at that church, who said for months she had been telling her husband, come back, I'll forgive you. Come back, I'll forgive you. Come back to your first love. Don't leave your family, your kids. Come back to this community. Why should you forsake me? Because I'm still going to be here and I'm still going to be faithful with you. And yet, despite all that, the husband left, packed his bags, moved to Thailand. And now she's reeling in that moment. And yet she's saying to everyone and she's saying to the pastor, if he were just to come back, I would still forgive him. Because Jesus Christ has forgiven me. If he were just to come back, we would embrace him. And now the question that she's asking now that he's gone is not, what can I do to restore my honor? What can I do to prove to myself that I'm, a, that I'm an adult with worth? Do I lash out? Do I look for an autonomous, independent life apart from my kids? Do I abandon them too? Do I leave my Lord? Do I leave Christ Jesus? Do I leave this church too and seek out my own worth? No, she's asking the question, pastors, how do I live faithfully in light of this calamity? Help me. I want to still be faithful. Christ Jesus remains my Lord. He is my true groom. I can forgive and I can be faithful. And I remember thinking to myself, one of those rare moments that came in my life, right? I remember thinking to myself, this, this is one of those moments where I thought to myself, Christianity has to be true. Because here's a worldview that tells you, that promises you, that compels you to say and to be able to endure suffering like that. What could give, what kind of worldview would allow you not to lash out, not to seek out your own comfort, not to run away when suffering hits, but rather to endure and to forgive and forbear anyway, the way this person did? How do you do it? What's the measure of your worldview and what would you do in that kind of context? Would you be able to have the power to not fear? That's how you defend the faith. That's what's going to cause people to look at you and say, look at the way this person loves. So, that's the first point, the call to defend the faith. That's how you defend the faith. But how do you do this? How do you get the kind of power that Sarah did? How do you get the power that the first century Christians did uh, to embrace martyrdom willingly? How do you know that you won't be put to shame, but your enemies will be put to shame? How do you know that you can have no fear? How do you know that you would triumph in the end and have victory despite what you see by sight? Notice, right, verse 13, it says, have no fear. Verse 17, it says, they will be put to shame. But how do you know that these promises, that you shouldn't be fearful, that you, won't be put, that you would be vindicated in the last day despite the sufferings that you go through here today? How do you know these things will come true? Well, let's go to the second point now. The power to defend the faith. And here's where it's going to get technical, okay? The logic of verses 18 to 22 as a way to ground the command to defend the faith and to suffer well in verse 15 is really, really, really simple, 
but Peter is going to say it in a really convoluted way. So I want you to stick with me here, okay? Here's, here's the simple logic in a nutshell. The simple logic is, Christ is a greater authority than anything that you ever faced here on earth. And if he has approved of you, why should you fear anything else that is here today, right? If you were a university student and you had a bad TA who was giving you bad grades because he doesn't like you and he was bullying you, but then your professor comes up to you who's above the TA, right, the teaching assistant, and comes up to you and says, look, I know the TA is really, really uh, making you, giving you a hard time right now, but don't worry, your grades will be vindicated. I've seen you, you're a great student, don't worry about the TA. If you have the approval of another authority that is higher than you, in other words, you therefore can have the courage and the willingness and the ability to face the secondary kinds of sufferings from the secondary authorities that you see before you. That's the logic, okay? So that's a simple logic. Christ is your Lord, he's approved of you, so why should you fear any man? If you got God's approval, you don't need anybody else's approval, okay? That's a simple logic. How does he get there? Well, verse 18 to 22 is gonna tell us, okay? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the easy part. Notice here, Christ, who's your greater authority, has been your example for us. He suffered once for sins, and he suffered innocently. He's a true innocent sufferer, and he suffered righteously for the unrighteous, namely us. That's how we get saved in the first place. We are unrighteous, Christ was righteous as our substitute, and his righteousness becomes ours so that we might be brought to God, and now God approves of us. You see that logic? It's very clear. But here's where it's going to get tricky, okay? Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay, pause, right? What's going on here? What in the world does that mean? Spirits in prison, what does that mean? Proclaim, what did he proclaim? He went, where did he go? Three questions we've got to ask. Where did Jesus go when in verse 19 it says he went? What did he proclaim to the spirits in prison? And third, who are these spirits in prison? And for the next 10 minutes, it's going to feel like a theological class, okay? Because there's just no getting around this. So hang with me. Two prefaces here. Martin Luther said that this specific passage is the hardest and most obscure passage in the New Testament. And so he says, I have no clue what it's saying. That's Martin Luther, the German reformer in the 16th century, okay? Hero of mine. So when I consulted him and he says, I got no idea, I was really discouraged. Uh, Tim Keller, another hero of mine, you know, he's a pastor in New York City, um, he was made to preach on this passage, and the very beginning of his sermon, he says, if I had to choose one passage I should never preach from, it's this. So, another discouragement. Here I was trying to look to my heroes for encouragement that I could preach this passage well, and twice I was discouraged. So, um, here's, so the next 10 minutes is going to feel really, really dense, and I need you to stick with me because we need to look at three different interpretations of this passage. Two of them I'm going to disagree with, and the last one is my view, Okay. 10 minutes, we're going to try to spend our time on this. There's no other way we can get around this. Here's, here's where we're going to go, okay? Oh, another side note. Let me just preface this. The purpose of preaching is so that you would understand Christ preached and proclaimed to you the message of the gospel, that you are a sinner saved by grace through Jesus Christ, and through the preaching of the gospel, you would worship God. That's the purpose of preaching. That's why we're here. That's what makes 
preaching different from a lecture, okay? Now, but the secondary purpose of preaching is so that you can come away from the text of Scripture, a passage like this, and you can come away and say, I know what the text means, I think. I can come away thinking, I know how to read First Peter now. That if you've sat through our whole series in the book of Ecclesiastes or the Gospel of John or First Peter now, you can actually say to yourself, I think I know what the message is, such that if preachers are not teaching us the text of Scripture, and you're not coming away thinking with a greater confidence, I can know what God has willed me for me to know, the preacher isn't doing this job, okay? With all those prefaces, let us go to this, okay? So here's three views um, of verse 19, okay? So again, where did he go? What did he proclaim? Who are these spirits in prison? The first view is, let's just call it the purgatory view. This is going to be fun, okay? The purgatory view. Now, this, this view argues that the spirits in prison are Old Testament saints. I'm sure you've had the question before. If Christ came in the New Testament and he's the redeemer of, of humanity, what happened to all those souls that were in the Old Testament before Christ? Right? Were they saved by Jesus? If they were saved by Jesus, how were they saved by Jesus? Okay, that's the first view. And so the spirits in prison argues that the saints of the Old Testament were in a hell-like place, not exactly hell, because they're not meant to be there, because they're Old Testament believers, but they're kind of in this purgatory state, waiting for Jesus to come. So that when it says here, in which he went and proclaimed, where did he go? He went down, he descended into hell. You've heard that before? This is where they would appeal to this passage. He descended and he proclaimed the message of the gospel to the spirits, namely Old Testament saints, in prison. That's what that text argues. So, and when did he go? Jesus went between his death and his resurrection. So death, descent, resurrection, after he preached the Old Testament saints. That's the first view. That's the purgatory view. And I want to argue that is wrong. Why? Notice when did he go in verse 18? Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. When did he go to proclaim he didn't go between his death and his resurrection. He went after his resurrection. Notice what it says there. Being put to death in the flesh, that's his crucifixion, and made alive in the spirit, that's his resurrection. The spirit rose him up from the dead, right? And then he went to proclaim to the spirits in prison. So the descent view can't find grounding from this passage because this passage clearly states and sequences the going into the spirits of prison after the resurrection, not before. That's key. So that's why I would argue that this view doesn't make any sense. And also the whole of the Bible doesn't talk about purgatory. And the whole of the Bible talks about the saints of the Old Testament immediately being with Jesus, right? Enoch taken up to heaven immediately. Jesus shows up with Moses and Elijah. They were in heaven. They were not waiting in some purgatory to wait for Jesus to come to them, okay? So the first view, wrong, I think, okay? So second view, the time travel view. You guys like Avengers Endgame? Maybe you'll like this. So, time travel view, okay? So, um, in this view, uh, they would also argue that Jesus went in between his death and his resurrection uh, in the spirit alone. So, look at 1 Peter. This is where they would get an argument for their side. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. Notice what it says there in 1 chapter, 
First Peter chapter 1, verse 10 to 11. Let's read both of that. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. Notice that, that odd phrase, the Spirit of Christ. Right? You see that? The Spirit of Christ. So interpreters who take the time travel view say, well, verse 19, made alive in the Spirit doesn't refer to his resurrection, they would say. They would say that made alive in the Spirit is Jesus' soul going back in time to the time of Noah, and it was his Spirit that was proclaiming the message of salvation to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, and so on. Such that because God is outside of time, he's able to work chronologically that, that messes up the whole time system. Okay? So that's the view. That's why it brought up Noah. Such that the spirits of Christ that was quoted in verse 10 and 11, it's now the spirit that is in Noah that was preaching to Noah and through whom Noah preached to the people. Do you see that view? Now, this makes some more compelling sense, I think. In fact, this was Luther's reading and Calvin's reading, uh, but I still am not convinced by it. And yes, you can tweet that Gray disagreed with Calvin and Luther, right? Which is a dangerous thing normally. But I don't think this is the case because made alive in the spirit just doesn't seem like this is Jesus' soul. I think made alive in the spirit is resurrection. What else could made alive mean, right? His soul would never really die. Anyway, there's a long explanation. We don't have to cap there. And spirits in prison, if, they, if you take the time travel view, spirits in prison would have to refer to unbelievers because Jesus' spirit preached through Noah to the unbelievers, but nowhere else does the Bible refer to unbelievers as spirits in prison. Uh, uh, there's, another, there's another word for soul, if you want to refer to the human soul, and that's not the word that Peter uses. But every time spirits is mentioned in the plural, it's always in reference to demonic powers. Okay, demonic powers. And that's where I'm going. So I don't think the first view makes sense. I think it's the weakest view. The second view makes a little bit more sense. And here's my view. Here's the third view, okay? Again, because this is the most obscure passage in the New Testament according to Luther, I'm going to hold to this in humility and say I could be wrong about this, but I think this is what the text is saying by virtue of the force of the wording itself, okay? Here's what I think it's saying. It's saying here, after he was made alive in the spirit, namely he was resurrected, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Well, where did he go after Jesus was resurrected? He ascended to the heavenly places. Remember that? Remember Acts chapter 1 and 2? Jesus ascended to the heavenly places. And in fact, Peter refers to this. Look at verse 22. 1 Peter 3, 22. Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Right? So where did Jesus go after his resurrection? He went to be glorified by being seated at the right hand of God, signifying that his victory was completed. So what was he proclaiming? He was proclaiming not a message of the gospel to Old, um, Old Testament believers, I'm sorry, unbelievers in the time of Noah or Old Testament saints in purgatory. He wasn't proclaiming a message of the gospel. He was proclaiming a message of subjection, a message of victory, a message of triumph, which would again make sense of verse 22. He was proclaiming this message of victory over all of the fallen angels who are now in prison. Okay, stick with me here. 
And so the spirits in prison don't refer to Old Testament saints or unbelievers, but rather to fallen demonic angels. That's what I think the spirits in prison refer to, verse 19. That's confirmed in verse 22, okay? Two or three more minutes. To make sense of spirits in prison as a reference to angels, we need to have a biblical theology of angels. You ready? Okay. Stick with me, okay? According to Hebrew or Jewish cosmology, there was a three-tiered universe, okay? There was heaven, there was earth, then there was Sheol or hell, let's just say, okay? Now, if unbelievers with unforgiven sin died, they would fall from earth to hell because of unforgiven sin. Believers with forgiven sin by the blood of Jesus Christ get taken up to heaven, awaiting for the last day where earth and heaven become one place, okay? Now, here's the question. If angels sinned and fell away from God, where would they go? Notice, if human beings sin, our dwelling place is earth, and we sin, we would end up in hell. Uh, if it remains unforgiven, right? The only difference between Christians and non-Christians is forgiven sin. Now, but if angels whose dwelling place is heaven, where would they go if they sinned against the Lord and they were cast out of heaven? Earth, okay? That's like shocking to some of us. Oh my goodness, fallen angels everywhere. Okay. Uh, Now, stick with me. Turn your Bibles to Jude chapter 1 verse 6. I want you to see this from the text so that I'm not just making up some history channel. Uh episode or something. Jude chapter 1 verse 6. This is fun, isn't it? All right. Um, verse 6. Notice what it says there. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So notice the prison language there, kept in chains. The prison language, they're kept in chains. And notice that this prison-like status of them being in chain is not their last resting place yet, right? They're waiting for the judgment of the great day. So when they're in chains, they're there until the judgment of the great day where I think they'll end up in hell, okay? So this dwelling place of being in chain, of being prisoners, is different from the hell that they would get in the judgment day. You see that they left their proper dwelling and now they're in chains, okay? Now, let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6 to right before Noah. This is going to be even more freaky and you guys are going to ask me more questions. I'll be standing up front later and you can, but we can't dwell on this for too long. But notice Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, whoa, what's that? The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. In verse 4, the Nephilim, the angelic beings, were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay? So let me make the connection for you. Jude 1.6 says, angels left their proper dwelling, and therefore God enchained them somewhere. And then here in chapter 6 of Genesis, 
There's this reference before the time of Noah. Notice the first Peter connection. Before the time of Noah, where these Nephilim, these angelic beings, went on earth because they were attracted to human beings. Okay? Now, one last text. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Well, let's just take a look at verse 2. This is talking about uh, unbelieving, uh, the unbelieving life right now. In which you once walked, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sense of disobedience. Notice what Ephesians chapter 2 is saying. It's saying here that demonic activity is all around us here today. They're so pervasive that there are the authorities and powers that are in the air. Okay? And Paul repeats that phrase over and over again, actually, in the book of Ephesians and Colossians. Every time he talks about Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, he's talking about putting to shame the principalities and powers, the angels, the, 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 the powers that are over this world. What he's trying to say there, that there's something about the crucifixion that defeats the authorities that are now on this earth. And here's, to wrap it all up together, angels who have fallen from heaven are on earth and God keeps them there and gives them a degree of authority, but is imprisoning them there. They're not able to go back to heaven. And these angelic beings are exactly what's keeping people away from belief in God. That's in short, the biblical theology of angels here. And here's, here's what Peter is saying to, to come back to our passage, okay? So Jesus, after he was resurrected, he went and proclaimed this message of subjection to the spirits in prison who is at the right hand of God, verse 22, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. By his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection, finally his ascension, Jesus is proclaiming victory over the very evils that are on this earth, that are running loose on this earth, allowed by God to fall from heaven here today. And, G and, and Peter is saying here, if Jesus has defeated these authorities, who's the highest authorities, because your ultimate problem, again, you don't fight with flesh and blood, with the principalities and powers, right? Your ultimate problem is not... Nero's persecuting you, or the unbelievers around you, there's a higher authority that's behind them, namely the angels and the authorities and the powers. And Peter is saying here, Jesus has brought you to God, in effect, killing the very evil that crucified Christ in the first place. And if Jesus is victorious even over the greatest evils of this world, including all of the demonic activity, why should you fear, right? And therefore, how, Christian, could you know that you won't be put to shame on the last day? How do you know that you would participate with Jesus Christ? Well, look at what he accomplished, right? When he suffered innocently, nobody had any idea that it is precisely through this innocent suffering that the power of God would bring brought forth from him. Nobody would have any idea that all of the powers of evil were being destroyed precisely by the cross itself. And so suffering in Jesus Christ is not meaningless. Just as Christ innocently suffered and it suffered was a victory, so could you now suffer well. If he is your Lord, why should you fear any man? He has defeated all the principalities and powers so you could be with him.
Okay, that's what this passage is saying. That's the second point. Now, third point. How we know we can participate in this power. Now, we're not out of the bushes technically just yet, but it gets a little bit easier from here, okay? The third point here, we got to talk about Noah and the ark. Verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. This is referring to the fallen angels. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, who brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, now, he's saying here that this power in Jesus Christ could be yours. If he's Lord, you'll be victorious with him over all the angels and powers and authorities and demons. How do you know, therefore, that you can participate in this power? How do you know that you, you will be triumphing with Jesus? What confirms this? What's the sign and seal of this good conscience that you have? And the good conscience that just refers to the fact that you're suffering for the right thing. And if you're suffering for the right thing, you, ha- you can have a good conscience, right? Okay, let's think a little bit about Noah here for a moment. Noah, according to Jesus' interpretation in Luke 17, was who? He was chosen by God, to proclaim a message of salvation or redemption, deliverance from the coming waves of death, water, right? Noah was called to proclaim this message of salvation to an unbelieving people. Jesus said that when Noah was preaching this message to them, the people were drinking and eating and they were being married. They didn't listen to Noah. So what was Noah doing? Noah was preaching a message that was ignored that was reviled by the people around him, and he and his family were the minority. And for the time that they were building the ark, they needed to withstand all of this criticism, all of this ignoring, all of this suffering, as they were proclaiming this message of salvation that all their friends and family members were not listening to. Now, so in other words, Noah was an example of innocent suffering. And throughout the whole time as he was building the ark and people were eating and drinking and were being merry, Noah just had to live by faith that one day God will send in a flood. Noah had to live by faith that one day following God is precisely what would deliver him, right? And notice, when the waters came, there was a measure of vindication on Noah's part, right? When the waters came and he was in the ark, he was saved by the water and through the water unto a new world. You see that? And so how did they know that they had a good conscience? How did they know that they didn't suffer for nothing? How did they know that they withstand and endured building this ark and all this criticism from the outside? Well, how did they know that they could go through that and it's not for nothing? Well, the waters, right? The flood was the great vindication that God was right and their suffering was not for nothing. But friends, what this passage is saying is, The point of the story of Noah is not that you could become a a better version of Noah. The point of the story of Noah was there's a truer and greater Noah. Because when Noah preached the message of salvation, he built an ark to save himself from the waters. He only risked his life, but he didn't actually lose his life. But there's another person truer and greater than Noah who came, who didn't just take on the waters by building an ark to save himself. No, he took on the waves of death himself. So that anybody that who would believe in him 
would go through the waves of death and would come out the other side into a new world. And that person is Jesus Christ. And just as the family of Noah, a minority, amongst a people that were eating and drinking, not thinking about God at all, a minority were putting their faith in Noah, were putting, being put in the ark. They could know by the water that they are vindicated now. So are Christians. You will be a minority. You will preach a message of salvation that is not going to be listened by many. And in fact, the greater Noah, Jesus did the same for you. He preached a message and nobody listened. And he didn't have a family of eight following him. He was alone and even his father abandoned him. He didn't risk his life on an ark. He lost his life and he was crushed and buried under the waves of death itself. And how do you know, O oh friend, that you could be saved just as the family did? Look upon your Redeemer. Look upon Jesus Christ. Have the good conscience that this Jesus went through the other side of the waters and you too would be there with him. And how do you know that you'd be there with him? Baptism is a sign and seal of you being included in this covenant relationship with Jesus. Notice verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. It's not saying that baptism is a magical power as if it automatically regenerates you or saves you or changes you. Notice it says that exactly in verse 21. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. So it's not as if the waters are magical. It's just normal water. But what is, a, what is baptism a sign and seal of? It is an appeal to God for a good conscience. It is a sign and seal. It is a stamp by God for a good conscience that you are in this ark, this community of God. But you're not looking to the waters to be saved. You're looking at the truer and greater Noah, who in his resurrection has saved you, rescued you, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is your hope. And oh, so Christian, I hope that this is the encouragement for you that you could see, therefore, that Peter is saying the sufferings that you're going through here today is not for nothing. There's a cosmological purpose behind this, a biblical theological message behind this, and a redeemer who has gone through the waves of death for you as a guarantee that you would be victorious in him so you can continue to forgive anybody around you who's causing you to suffer and you could continue to call them into this ark of salvation. Believe in Jesus. Join me together in Christ Jesus. Together. Let us pray. Father, this was a difficult passage to teach on, a difficult passage to wrap our minds around. But let us not lose the central core message, Father, of this passage. Namely, that our sufferings are not in vain, that we will not be put to shame, that we are victorious because you were victorious in us, and by our baptism, we can know, we can be assured that we have been signed and sealed by the Lord himself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.